Well, I am so glad that you're here with us this morning. I'm so glad that you've been able to join with us in worship and um, in prayer. And now we're going to open the Word together. And uh, and I guess I didn't introduce myself earlier. I'm not used to doing the uh, the opening sort of welcome and announcements, but usually we introduce ourselves. I'm Robbie, and uh, it's so great to have you here. I'm so glad that you're in in the house this morning, as well as those who are uh, hopefully going to be watching online. We've had uh, a little goof, uh, I guess, over the last few weeks and, and haven't gotten it up every time, but I think today we're going to be good, so I'm praying that, uh, that everything will get online a little bit later. So if you're watching online, welcome. We're so glad that you're here uh, to be a part of this with us. Uh, we are in week, I think, I don't, I don't even know, at this point, seven, eight, we've, we've been in the book of Hebrews for a little while, and we're walking through, this is our summer scripture series, we're walking through this letter to the Hebrews, and, and it's such an interesting and, and unique uh, part of the New Testament, and, and it's, such, uh, it's, it's been really, really amazing to walk through this text verse by verse, and so today um, we're going to be... Uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 3, we're also going to be in Psalm 95, and we're also going to be touching on Exodus a little bit. And so, um, so normally, you know, as we've been walking through this, we've been strictly being in, been in Hebrews. But if you know, as we've dug into it a little bit, uh, that, that, that Hebrews harkens back to the Old Testament a good bit. And so today, we're going we're gonna to lean a little bit heavily on the Old Testament to understand what he's talking about here in the New Testament. And so uh, we're going to be in Hebrews 3. We're going to be starting in verse 7 in just a little while. So if you have your scripture journals, uh, or if you have your, your Bibles, or if you use your phones, then go ahead and, and get there. But we're going to start in Psalm 95, which we prayed a little bit of earlier uh, in, in the morning. So as you get those scriptures pulled up, uh, here's what I want to do. I want to first share a story of deliverance, a story of redemption, a story of justice as we as we get going, and it's a story from the Bible that most of you have heard before, okay? And, but, but I wonder if I can give you uh, sort of a different perspective on it this morning. I wonder if I can give you a different uh, perspective that I think is found in our, in our text here today. Um, so, to, so to understand our text for this morning, to understand Hebrews uh, chapter 3 and what we're going to be talking about here today... Uh, then, then we're going to, and, and to know what the author was getting at, then we're going to need to go back a little bit, and we're going we're gonna to go back to the Old Testament, and we're going to start this story on this, this unforgettable night where the Jewish homes uh, still smelled of, of roasted lamb uh, that they had, uh, they had made for the Passover, but, but from the Egyptian homes came these cries of anger and sadness because of the tenth plague, the, the, the killing of the firstborn son had happened. And, and so uh, this is kind of where this story starts. And so the Jewish nation was finally allowed to leave Egypt after 430 years in slavery. In fact, um, after enduring God's 10 plagues that, that he rained down on Egypt during that time, the Pharaoh actually commanded them to leave and said, do it quickly. And so as, as dawn broke that next day, 600,000 men on foot plus women and children, it's estimated about 1.5 million souls in all, and all of their livestock began the great exodus. All right, they're, they're leaving out of Egypt, and they, they left in order, and they left with purpose. Right? They were divided into their tribes, and, and they were led by their tribal leaders, and, and, and so they were heading out of bondage into a brand new world of, of hope and possibility, of freedom. 
they even left richer than what they, than what they should have or what they thought they would have because, because they were, the Egyptians were so glad to see them go that they let them plunder and take anything that they wanted, Scripture tells us. So they came out of Egypt rich. They stepped out into the wilderness, and there was God, eager to meet them and guide them on the path that lay ahead. He was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. What a vision that must have been. How incredible that must have been. There was a little bit of a hiccup of faith when Pharaoh and his armies showed up, but not to worry because God moves the pillar of fire behind the Israelites behind his people to shield them from the Egyptian armies. And, and, and it gives the Israelites light to see, and it keeps the, the Pharaoh's army in darkness. And then Moses stretches out his hand, and, and a howling wind from the east comes in and parts the Red Sea to provide this unbelievable, amazing dry passage across the water. And so then the, the armies of Egypt followed, but God made their chariots swerve. Out of control, and Moses stretched out his hand again, and the walls of water came crashing down on the enemies. God was with them. Then the song of Moses is sung by, by Miriam and, and the other ladies, and, and they sing this song Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider is thrown into the sea. What a beginning! Right? For, for these people, what a beginning this was. What hopes, what dreams. Soon they would be in the promised land. The land of milk and honey is just right there within reach. I mean, from Mount Sinai, it's only an 11-day journey. But what began so well went downhill fast. It ended very poorly. Of, of the 600,000 men, a million-plus total Israelites who began so well, only two of them, two of them over the age of 20, actually made it to the promised land. And that was after 40 years of wandering in the desert, complaining, rebelling, inviting. But the sad reality is, is that this story shows us that it's possible to, to begin well and to end poorly. In fact, this common human tendency tends to show itself, I think, explicitly within the context of, of religion and, and faith. And the writer of Hebrews knows this, and he's concerned for the people in the small house church that he's talking to. We're, we're making a, we've made a bit of an assumption that he's talking to a smaller congregation, uh, possibly a house church of Hellenistic Jewish Christians. And so, so, this is, so he's talking to them, and he's concerned for them. He's afraid that the same thing that happened during the initial exodus generation will actually happen to these, these Jewish Christians because of the adversity that they face. The author probably knew them well. By many accounts, the author probably pastored uh, in some capacity in this church, maybe from afar, but, but the author had some sort of a pastoral uh, role over them. And, and many of them had their own exodus out of Judaism once they saw the light of Jesus, but now they are facing hardships. Would they, would they finish well or would they finish poorly? The title of the message this morning is, is Finish Strong. I think that's the the message that the author of Hebrews wants us to hear. It's the message that the Holy Spirit, I believe, wants us to hear. And so here's what happens. The author, uh, the preacher here in Hebrews did what any other pastor would do when they saw an issue that needs addressing within the congregation. He turned to Scripture. And where does he turn? Psalm 95. 
Now, remember the theme of Hebrews. We've talked about this. Jesus is king. He's better than his rivals. He's better than his forerunners. And, and, and his kingship and his conquest is going to be a global conquest. He's the Lord of, of the new Canaan. He's the, the Lord of the new promised land. He's, he's got, there's, he has this heritage of all nations and all peoples. And, and so that's where the context of Psalm 95 actually sits, the context of Jesus' universal kingship, his inheritance, his judgment, his deliverance, and his rule over the nations. And it's, it, this is a segment of the Psalms um, that the author of Hebrews has clearly, I think, spent some time in, and he's clearly uh, meditated on these truths, and he wants to share these truths with his church. And, and I believe the Holy Spirit wants to share it with our church as well. So, so let's look at it together, starting uh, with the first half of Psalm 95, which runs through the first half of verse 7. And so I usually try not to, to cut verses in half because I want to read the whole thing for context, but we will read the whole thing. We're just going to split the chapter in half, and then we'll come back and read the second part. So we read this earlier, so I'm going to read through it again quickly. Uh, this is Psalm 95, starting in verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let's make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God. And a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And that's where we'll pause. Okay, so, so these first seven verses of the psalm are called to gladness and worship in light of God's salvation. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. His salvation is mighty, and it's worth singing about, right, church? And so by the end of the psalm, we, we actually learn that David would have us read it with a very specific salvation of God in mind. The salvation of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. It actually turns out to be a psalm that we should, we should sing with our Bibles open to Exodus and Numbers, right? We should have our Bibles open to this as we, as we sing this song, psalm aloud. And so how, how is the Exodus accomplished? By proving Yahweh's superiority over the Egyptian king and the false gods. That's why they let him go. Right? The, 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 the false prophets in Egypt tried to match the plagues. They tried to match what Moses was, was calling down. They tried to match what Yahweh was doing, but they couldn't do it. And so Yahweh's superiority, Jesus is better. That's how the Exodus actually happened. That's how it came about. And hence, read the whole of verse 3. It says, for Yahweh, the, the Lord, is a great God and a great king above all the gods. God proved this beyond a shadow of a doubt with the ten plagues and the smiting of the firstborn sons of Egypt, having the spirit of death pass over his own people by the blood of the Passover lamb, if you remember, was smeared on their doorways. And he, and he brought the people through the Red Sea, and he brought down the flood of judgment on the horses and the riders of Pharaoh's armies. When you think about these events, Psalm 95 is a psalm of gladness, right? Seeing of God's triumph, seeing of his deliverance. So think about the first half of the psalm in the Exodus story. Picture the people of Israel, just, just kind of have it in your head, singing the song of Miriam, the song of Moses in Exodus 15, standing on the shores of the Red Sea, the horse and the rider you have thrown into the sea. Now, church, watch it turn on a dime, the second half of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. 
as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof that they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's a very different half of the psalm. Can you see the picture in your head? I want you to, I want you to kind of go there and, and picture this church. The people dancing and singing of the Lord's salvation. They're going to be led through the wilderness towards the promised land by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And, 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 and those very people singing and dancing are going to drop dead in the wilderness for their unbelief. We're talking about the story of Exodus and how God delivered them for their enemies through massive displays of power. He not only brought them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, but there's an entire story that comes after that. From Exodus 16 on, it's a continuous, relentless display of God's love and his care and his visible power. Let me just give you a few examples. He, he fed them with bread from heaven. In Exodus 16, he gave them uh, water from a rock in Exodus 17. He defeated Amalek before them in Exodus 17. He clothed uh, Mount Sinai in smoke and fire and gave them the law, carved on tablets of stone written by his own finger. He met with Moses before their eyes in the tent of meeting, and he covered it in a, a pillar of cloth. He made Moses' face shine with radiance. He dwelt in their camp in the tabernacle. He regulated their lives uh, for, for their good through his law in the book of Leviticus, and he defeated their enemies before them as they journeyed toward the promised land in the book of Numbers. And then, in this, this very pivotal moment, the Lord brings them to the very edge of the promised land. And in Numbers 13, God commands spies to be sent into Canaan to spy it out. And he says explicitly, this is, he says this explicitly about the spying out, that, that this is a spying out of the land of Canaan, Scripture says, which I am giving to the people of Israel. And they go and they spy out the land and they return a report that it flows with milk and honey. It's a fruitful land, but the spies also said that the land is filled with enemies, huge enemies they couldn't possibly defeat. And the people are scared, but Caleb, one of the spies, says, let us go up and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Why? Because the Lord has already given it to us. It's already ours. And so what happens? The people believe their fears rather than the living God, who ransomed them out of Egypt. And, and God, in his fury, so he's talking about in Psalm 95, in his fury vows that of, of that generation only Caleb and Joshua shall enter the land. And so they wander for four decades in the wilderness until the last one drops dead and their descendants are finally allowed to enter into the land. It started well, church, but it ended so poorly. It started with so much promise. They had so much faith and excitement, but they allowed their belief to fade. The hearts were hardened over time. And that's why the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 95. So if you got Hebrews chapter 3 open up, we're going to read and it's going to sound very, very familiar. We're going to start in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. He's saying today if you, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. The Jews would have known this verse very well because it is a call to worship. 
They, they, they would use this verse as a call to worship every Sabbath evening in the synagogue. These words were, were recited and repeated time and time again, week after week, year after year, as a call to listen to the voice of God. And so the writer of Hebrews takes this warning from Psalm 95 to not harden their hearts. He takes this warning seriously, and he feels called to use it here, and even says, therefore, the Holy Spirit says. He understood that, that as the Holy Spirit had warned the psalmist hearers, uh, so, so long ago, a thousand years ago, the Holy Spirit is, is warning and he is still speaking in, in this moment in, in, the, in the book of Hebrews. And for us today, 2,000 years later, he continues to, this continues to be the Spirit's message. There's, there's sort of this like, like timeless urgency to this message that the Spirit has for us. And church, we have to listen to the Holy Spirit's message today because it's God's message to a church in troubled times. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to, put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. There's two words in this passage that help us understand a little bit more about hardening one's heart. It's two words, uh, rebellion and testing. Now, these words, as he's quoting it, as he's reciting it, you'll, if, if, you, if you paid really close attention when we were reading Psalm 95, you'll recognize that it's a little different. There's a couple little things that, are, that have been tweaked and changed. Because he's reciting right now, this is, again, this is to Hellenistic Jews. This is Jews that are probably living uh, in, in, in Greek and Roman culture, possibly around Rome. And so, um, and so he's reading from what's called the Septuagint. He's quoting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so whenever it was translated, some words were changed a little bit, and they were tweaked a little bit. And, and so that's what he's reading from. But, but if you were paying attention as we read Psalm 95, it uses, uh, in, in the psalm that we read, it uses the original Hebrew words in their place. In their place. Rebellion is Meribah, and testing is Massah. These words point us to Exodus 17, where in the early wilderness experience, Israel ran out of water and began to complain and quarrel with Moses. And, and then Moses, at, at the direction of God, of course, struck the stone, and water came flowing out. And at the end of that account, it says that he named that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people and them testing the Lord by asking if he's really with them or not. The same thing happens 40 years later in Kadesh. It's important to note that it happens at the beginning of the journey and at the end, so it likely happened all throughout the journey as well, this quarreling, this unbelief. And, and what we can take away from that is that the, the heart hardening that took place while in the wilderness was rooted in unbelief. They were unbelieving, refusing to believe that God would or could provide for their needs. Even after all they had seen, after all they had experienced, they still drifted into unbelief, which left them with hardened hearts. Let's read a little bit more into the text. Therefore, verse 10, I was provoked with that generation and said, uh, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. We, we know how the story uh, came to pass. We, we just covered it, talked about it. Because their hearts were hardened because of that unbelief, the generation of Israelites did not get to enter into the promised land. And so now the author brings it home. Verse 12 is the key uh, to our passage this morning. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. 
don't fall away from the living God. Don't do what that generation did. That's the author's message here. Don't do what they did. Hold fast to your confidence. Hold fast your confidence to the very end. Finish strong so that you might enter into his rest. Don't harden your heart in rebellion. Stand firm. And because our God is a good father, he doesn't just uh, give hard words, but he also gives us help in obeying them. So right in the text, he provides us with three ways to finish strong. And I'm going to give you three quick things. Three quick ways to finish strong. Number one is to declare war on unbelief. This is strong language because this is intended to be strong language. Not enough to avoid unbelief. It's not enough to try to ward it off. Declare war on unbelief. The first way that our Lord helps us in this fight against unbelief and hardened hearts is to tell us the nature of the fight that we face. All right, I want you to listen to me, church. This is not a tickle fight. All right, you with me? Like, this is not a pillow fight. It's not a a friendly tussle with a brother or a sister. This is a fight to the death. The the warning is that if if we have evil and unbelieving hearts, we'll fall away from the living God. And And I need you to understand this, church, because this is not a little thing. This shouldn't be glanced over. Unbelief is a dragon, not a dragonfly. It's destructive to our faith journeys. But what a grace to know the stakes, right? What a grace to have this knowledge, to understand this, that every day we wake up, we know how to pray. We know our enemy. We know what we need to pray. Father, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. And so the warning is to take care. So he says in Scripture, take care. And the very next word in that line shows us to brothers. Beware brothers so that there's not any of you, in any of you, this evil and unbelieving Heart. And this is meaning like we, like he's kind of, he's kind of encompassing all of us in this, this we, all of us sitting here in these comfy theater seats this morning, right? Like we can't go to sleep. We can't sleep on this. We can't nod off on this. We can't drift. We can't be careless or indifferent in this thing, church. Even in the conclusion, the punchline at the, at the end of this whole section, which is going to be about rest, that is like about entering the rest we have in Christ is going to say, and I'm going to just jump a little bit ahead, uh, Hebrews 4.11 says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that none may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so we are to treat the enemy of unbelief as a deadly opponent, one to be fought every single day to our dying breath, which is why the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. To hold to the eternal life to which you are called and to which you were made, the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, Scripture says. Do, do you hear that, church? He says, fight the good fight. He doesn't say, sit the good sit of faith. You understand that? He doesn't say, fill the good fills of faith or catch the nice vibes of faith, but fight the good fight of faith. Come on, somebody. This is what our Scripture tells us. This is what Hebrews is trying. He's, he's He's begging his congregation and the Holy Spirit is begging us to declare war on unbelief. Don't let it take you down. I mean, these people saw miracles beyond our comprehension. In slavery for 430 years. Pulled out 
by God after his ten plagues, led by a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. Red sea parted before them, manna raining from heaven. And still they slipped into unbelief. You're not immune. You have to declare war on unbelief. Here's the second one. To fight, to finish strong, we must exhort and be exhortable. I don't think that's a real word, but we're going to use it and you get the picture. We have to exhort and be exhortable. I tried to look it up. I don't think it exists. I liked it, though. Here's what it says in Scripture, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are to exhort one another, which means to uh, strongly press, encourage, charge one another. About what? What are we pressing each other towards? We are urging each other uh, against, it says in verse 13, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Listen, I came to help somebody understand today that sin is sneaky. And it's out to physically and spiritually kill you. I'm using strong language because this is strong stuff. It's a thing that hardens us. And what does that mean? Well, the clearest place in the whole Bible of the nature of hardening is in Romans 1, I believe, where we learn that the hardening is what happens when human beings suppress the truth of righteousness. Okay, so what is that? Suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Well, it's what we do when we clearly perceive God's voice, his law, his righteous commands, and yet, like a misbehaving child who's been told to clean their rooms, we plug our ears and we stop listening. I hope that kind of gives the mental image of, of what that means. It's the thing that, that my kids do when I tell them something that they don't want to hear. The scene that they make in the middle of a grocery store, that's us. That's hardness. That is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And that's what we're being warned against. The kind of hearts that the Israelites, Israelites in the wilderness had to see the glory of God manifest Every morning and bread coming down and, and the smoke and fire and the, the Red Sea and the split rock and the rivers gushing forth. And, and, and to look at a handful of, of puny armies and say, God couldn't possibly deliver us from that. Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The hardness of unbelief. Can I speak some, some truth to you this morning? And, and we have been, but unbelief in response to God's given son and his promised salvation is the most, un, is the most offensive sin against God. Because it preaches blasphemies about him. And we're to exhort one another against that. And it requires a few things. Number one, it requires us to commit to loving one another more than fearing one another or idolizing one another. If you fear your brothers, you can't exhort them. It's not possible. If you idolize them, you can't live without their approval, without everyone liking you and thinking you're great. You can't exhort them that way either. No, the, the thing is to love your brothers and sisters and out of love to know them. That's risky, that's bold, that's costly, that's time-consuming, that's, that's being in community, living around tables and backyards and parks and church seats, and then out of you knowing them, speaking exhortation into their life. 
exhortations like, hey, Brenda, listen, I'm concerned. Every time we talk, you complain about your husband. If you have beef, go to counseling and work it out. But we are called to respect one another in marriage, not tear each other down in front of other people. That's tough. Hey, my man, when we hung out last night, you were incredibly disrespectful to your wife. That's not cool and that's not biblical. Exhortations like, listen, bro, I'm concerned. I've only seen you at church like two to three times over the last few months. What's going on? How can I help? Exhortations like, hey, man, I've I've been seeing what you've been posting on social media, and and I have to be honest, I don't think it's very Christ-honoring at all. Hey, Tom, I hear you're, you're bragging a lot about going to a church that does so much for the community, but I can't remember the last time that I saw you at a serving opportunity. Those hurt, but they help. You hear what I'm saying about fear and idolatry? Do you, do you get really, like, profoundly uncomfortable thinking about saying some of these things to, to one of your friends? Maybe you fear what they would say back. Or maybe you idolize them in such a way that, that you, you, can't, you can't lose their approval. I, I want to ask the hard question right now and simply say, do you love them? Do you believe that they are just like you, meaning they're in danger of the same evil, unbelieving heart, leading them to fall away from the living God? Because if so, we are called to exhort one another to say the hard things when they need to be said. And be exhortable. This requires a kind of humility that assumes that you are blind to your greatest sins. And that the Lord might grant sight to those, uh, of those sins to your brothers and sisters for your good. Here's the third thing. Humbly read the Old Testament. And I struggle with, I could probably couch like two or three more in here, but <clears throat> I thought this would just uh, bring it all together. Humbly read the Old Testament. Let's read these last, uh, last five or six verses. Um, starting in verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. <clears throat> for, those, uh, for, who, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would uh, not enter into his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This story, this history is, is written for your help. Don't do what many Christians do when they read the Old Testament and think, why, like, why, why do we have to read the book of Numbers? What does 36 chapters of self-centered people who grumbled every time they didn't get their way have to do with me? Ironic question. I want you to read it and see yourself where you're intended to see yourself. See yourself walking around with the nation of Israel. Look at that generation that died in the wilderness and see that as a mirror. See your sin in their sin, your heart in their heart. You know, we like to think that we're like kind of the heroes in Scripture. We're like David slaying Goliath. Listen to me, church. Sometimes we are Saul and the rest of the Jewish army that were helpless and needed a Savior. We couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. We like to focus on the Israelites once they cross the Jordan and conquered the cities, and and marched around Jericho, and and we get empowered, and we feel great about it. 
but we have to remember that, that, that we are just as easily relatable to the complaining, quarreling, hard-hearted generation that wandered in the wilderness and died in the desert before they got to come into the promised land. Listen to the text. For who were those who had heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt and led by Moses? And to whom was he provoked for 40 years? Who was it? It was all those who heard and saw marvels beyond imagining. They, they could fall dead of unbelief. If, if, if they could fall dead of unbelief, how much more might we, if we don't take care and exhort one another to hold fast to Christ? This last section, uh, verses 16 through 19, and, and we're, we're wrapping up if the band wants to come on back up. This last section, 16 through 19, the author asked six questions that are set up in three pairs. And the first pair asks this question, ask a question, and, the, and then the second of the pair sort of answers, but with another question. So it says this in verse 16. For who were those who had heard it yet rebelled? The answer, was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? He's, he's letting us know. Everyone who died in the desert began well. They, they, they saw and experienced the goodness of God. Next set, verse 17. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? He, he answers it with another question. Was it not those who, uh, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? He's talking about those who angered God for 40 years were the ones that didn't believe that God could provide, even though they started out with such high hopes. Hope alone cannot sustain us. There has to be belief. And he gets the last question. He says, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? And the answer, was it not but those who were disobedient? Our unbelief, church, leads to action. When we, when we don't believe, it results in disobedience. And we see the descent of, heart, of the hardness of heart here. Hope moves to disbelief, which moves to disobedience. So the author of Hebrews, the preacher to this group of Hellenistic Jews, wants us to know that we're to stand firm and to finish strong. It's always sad to me when you talk to um, when you talk to like many professing Christians today and, and you ask them about their faith. They'll tell you about the wonderful memory of their exodus. About how God brought them out of whatever God brought them out of. But they have nothing to say about their present day faith. Many of them have allowed their hearts to be hardened might have even fallen into disbelief. And I hope that's not where you are today, but if it is, I'd like to pray over you. God, we love you so much. And we're so thankful for your how your word exhorts us, how your word moves us to action, how your word calls us to step forth and to step out, to be bold, to stand firm and to finish strong. And so Lord, if there's anyone in here today that's dealing with unbelief, that's struggling with a hardened heart, I pray, Lord, right now that you would soften that heart in Jesus' name. Right now that you would move in the lives of the people in this room and listening online and that you would, you would pour out your grace and your mercy on them and that in this moment they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are for them, that you see them and you love them. May you help us, God, in our unbelief. Help me my unbelief. And God, if there's anyone in here who doesn't know you, 
It's not even a, a, str- a struggle of unbelief. It's, it's a struggle of, of, of disbelief. Of, of, of I'd ne- I've never believed. But God, I pray that you would call them home right now. That they would come into the family of God. That they would submit their lives to you. the unbelievable, unimaginable, unfathomable love that you have to offer. We love you so much. And we're so thankful that we can come here and worship you in this way. We're so thankful that we can open your word and learn from your servants a thousand, two thousand years ago. 3,000 years ago even. God, we love you so much and we're so thankful that we get to do this. But I pray that it doesn't stop with just coming in here, hearing a, a message and reading your word, but that we, we apply it to our lives. We take it out of here and that we allow it to, to, to change us, to move us to action, to declare war on unbelief in our lives. To, to love our brothers and sisters so much that we will exhort them. We will say the hurtful thing because we know that sometimes it helps. Not out of malice, but out of love. Give us boldness. Sustain us, God, as only you can. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.